Let me pray for us and we'll be going here. Uh, King Jesus, Lord, we, we put our trust in you, Lord, so that we will never be shaken. And so, Lord, uh, I just pray that as we continue to walk through your word this morning, uh, and just as we have worshipped you in singing of your praise in which you are worthy, God, I pray that you would help us to worship you in the hearing of your word. Um, Lord, you have something you want to say to each and every one of us. So God, open our hearts to believe, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear what you would have to say to us, Lord. Uh, this is Hillside Baptist Church. We are your church. We belong to you. So we pray that you would have your way in us. Amen. Okay, so um, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, we will continue through the book of Acts. Um, so just kind of a refresher, kind of where we are and where we've gone, right? We've seen that the, Jesus commanded them and told them that, that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And what we have seen is that that ends up becoming an outline for the book of Acts. So up until this point, the gospel has spread, as Jesus first said it would, in the city of Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is probably well over 10,000 at this point. Okay, And the Spirit has moved powerfully both in the working of miracles and in the proclamation of the gospel as multitudes of Jews dwelling in Jerusalem. Um, both Aramaic and Greek-speaking Jews have turned to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, their Redeemer, their Savior, and their Lord. But as we've seen over the past few weeks, right, that the growth of the church coupled with satanic attacks, okay, has caused problems within the church, uh, but they, um, they uh, resolve these problems by selecting reputable, wise, spirit-filled men of competency and character who can handle these potential causes of division, as well as being faithful witnesses outside the church. We saw that a few weeks ago. Okay? Uh, and now, one of those seven men, uh, who was a man described as full of the Holy Spirit, was a man named Stephen. And Stephen, as we learned, was proclaiming uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, okay, with, uh, within a, a Greek-speaking synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And as he did that, uh, many people began to oppose his message of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and, uh, but they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he spoke. And so the only way that they could try to refute him was to uh, but bring slanders against him or false witnesses against him, okay? And yet, uh, and uh, in the face of, and then he, he becomes arrested, and in the face of his arrest, what does Stephen do? Well, he begins the longest speech in the book of Acts where he is basically outlining to the Jewish authorities that they are acting just like their forefathers did when God had a message for them through the prophets. Um, and this, and so last time we talked about Abraham and Joseph, okay. And so now this time we're, we're continuing through Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin as he talks particularly about the life of Moses and the temple. And we're going thats what we're going to talk about this morning. And we talk about an Old Testament lesson, part two, beginning in Acts chapter seven, verse 
17. If you're able and willing, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Um, there's a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you if you don't have one. And if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. All right, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. It says, But at this time, at the time of, as the time of the promise drew near, uh, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our, forf our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in, word, in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile uh, in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled, and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent both as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain? Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, and the star from God Rephan, and the, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of the witness had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in to Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. 
What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and you who received the law as delivered by angels, and did not keep it. Word of God. Alright, so it's a long speech, um, it's, it's, there's a lot of depth going on, um, as uh, in, in, in that culture, right, which we can kind of relate to that in Southern culture a little bit, because in Southern culture, right, uh, you say, you say things without saying, right, you know, it's like, well, it's been great to have you guys over, that means, Please, I love you, but please leave. Some, some <laughs> all right, all right. We know what we're saying, okay? Well, you know that that's a very typical thing in cultures all throughout the world. Um, you, there are appropriate ways of saying things. You say things without saying them. Well, Stephen said a lot of things without saying them until he got to the end. Then he just said, "You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, and you always resist the Holy Spirit." But up until then, right, he's saying a lot of things without saying it, and that's what we want to wade through, is why, why did Joseph, as we talked about last time, we talked about Abraham, uh, why, did, why did Stephen say what he said, right? Last time we talked about Abraham and Joseph, and then today we're, talk, we're going to talk primarily about Moses and the temple, all right? But why did he give an Old Testament history lesson to the people who arguably knew the Old Testament better than anybody else, right? The Jewish authorities, Right? So that's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about it under three headings this morning. Number one, uh, Stephen is trying to say that Israel missed God in Moses' birth. Israel missed God in Moses' birth. Number two, Israel missed God in Moses' leadership. Israel missed God in Moses' leadership. And then number three, Israel missed God in the temple. Israel missed God in the temple. So first here, Stephen is saying that Israel missed God in Moses' birth. And so we saw how last time, right, that Stephen is building up this argument, right? Um... Abraham was blessed by God, uh, even though he didn't have the promised land, uh, and uh, and all he had was faith. All right, and in the same way, Joseph was blessed by God, uh, even though he was but he was rejected by his by his brothers, right? And uh, and even even uh, when he was, and, but then later he was exalted to the right hand of of power. We talked about uh, a couple weeks ago how Joseph was a figure of Christ in that regard. And now Stephen is moving forward in Israel's story chronologically to the next and probably the greatest figure in Old Testament history, and that is the figure of Moses. If you were if you were raised going to church, Moses is probably one of the very first people uh, that you learned about. You learned about uh, particularly about his uh, special birth, and that is that roughly 400 years after Joseph died, right, and the people of Israel at that time were living in the land of Egypt. They multiplied greatly as God promised them that would happen until they became a large people within the land of Egypt. And then a, a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And he was scared and concerned about this large foreign people living within their borders. And so he decided to enslave them. And in fact, as his fear grew, he wanted to um, weaken them by forcing them to expose, that means just leave out to the elements to die, uh, their baby boys, and in this case, by throwing them into the river Nile. 
And it was at this time, in the midst of this atrocity, that the baby Moses was born. But his mom, of course, risked everything, not wanting to kill her child, uh, by hiding him as long as she possibly could until he was three months old. And then she made a woven basket, which interestingly, in the Hebrew, the same word uh, is, the, is the word used for the basket is the same word as the Noah's Ark. Um, but anyways, it, it saved Moses' life, if you will, uh, and uh, she placed him where she knew that an Egyptian princess would find him, and so the Egyptian princess finds Moses and raises him as an Egyptian prince. Okay? And so and Stephen there mentions that Moses was raised in the instruction and wisdom of the Egyptians. But the first thing that we notice is in verse 20 there, Stephen notes uh, something interesting. He says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. So clearly Stephen is intending to communicate something by that statement, right? It means that Moses wasn't just a, a quote-unquote ordinary child in God's plans and God's purposes, right? That is that uh, because Moses was beautiful in God's sight, it means that, that God had a special connection and a special plan for Moses' life as a leader, a champion, a deliverer, a redeemer for the people of Israel. And of course, uh, this language that uh, Stephen uses is reminiscent of the language that is used in the gospel, the gospels about Jesus, right? Uh, it says that this baby was beautiful in God's sight, and Jesus, when he was uh, baptized, uh, the, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So it's this language of a, a, a special champion, a special leader of God's people having a special relationship with God. And so uh, we are told then that Moses is special in God's purposes and therefore should be listened to, right? And further, it says there that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This again reminds us of the language that Luke uses of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says uh, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. Okay, and then further on, it says that Moses... Stephen says that Moses was mighty in word and in deeds, which reminds us um, about Luke's description of Jesus in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It says there, uh, talk, it says concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and before all the people. So what do all these little details have to do with, with what's going on here. Well, it's clear from a from a from a literary perspective, right? What and from and from his speech, right? What what Stephen and Luke are trying to do is there is Moses is is seen as a as as a, a forerunner of Christ. He prefigures Christ, just as Moses had a special birth. Jesus had a special birth, right? If you read this, just as Moses, just as uh, the baby Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Even at Jesus' birth, there was, it was clear that, Mo, that Jesus was not going to be just an ordinary other person, but there was a special plan and purpose for him from God, and because of that, he should be respected and trusted and listened to and obeyed, right? That's why we celebrate Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, because it is just <laughs> miraculous, right? He was literally born of a virgin. 
God sent an angelic choir, right, to shepherds out in the field to announce the birth of his own son, right? Uh, that angels had appeared both to Mary and to Joseph, all right? And, and, and they told him, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Even as Jesus got a little bit older, his parents uh, accidentally left him back in town. <laughs> you ever done that? All right, accidentally left their kid back in town. All right, and but when they find him, what do they find him doing? They find him uh, discussing with the rabbis wisdom and scriptural understanding far beyond his years. Right in the in the temple courts. Right. So clearly, the point is is that Moses prefigured Jesus. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, right, what Stephen is saying is that uh, they, they still missed it. They still missed, uh, the, the Israelites still missed Moses. They didn't give him the respect that he, he, he warranted despite his special birth. And the same thing was true of Jesus. So the application for us today is don't miss Jesus like the Israelites miss Moses. That's what Stephen's trying to say, right? He's trying to say that despite all these signs that God gave, the Israelites still didn't uh, honor Moses as he warranted. And in the same way, they did. The, and then in, in their day, in Stephen's day, the, the Israelites did the same thing with Jesus. And so, uh, in all, all of this points to the this, this special and unique place that Jesus fulfills in the plan of God. And if you miss Jesus, you miss everything. So number one, Israel missed God and Moses' birth. And then number two, Israel missed God and Moses' leadership. Israel missed God and Moses' leadership. So if you continue through the life of Moses, we see even the same point fleshed out even more. Right? So at the age of 40, Moses comes up and he sees an Israelite being wronged by their Egyptian overseer. And he comes and... Uh, and uh, basically strikes the Egyptian down. Right? He strikes the Egyptian down. And so if you if you go back and you read that account in the book of Exodus, uh, it doesn't really say like why Moses did that, other than he wanted to you know to protect this Israelite fellow. Alright? But Stephen uh, but Stephen interprets it this way. This is very interesting, right? Stephen understands that really what Moses was doing at that moment was he was actually stepping up. He was breaking rank with the Egyptians. Okay, he was breaking... He, in other words, Moses never forgot who he was. He was breaking rank with the Egyptians, right? Because once he, once he killed that Egyptian, that was it. There was no more Pharaoh's court for Moses after that, all right? He broke rank with the Egyptians, all right, to identify with his people, with the Jewish people, and to act as their deliverer. Right? From the hand of the Egyptians, right? So, so the way that Stephen presents it is that Moses is really stepping up at this moment as a deliverer for the, for the, uh, for the Hebrew people. And so what that was, uh, what Moses striking down the Egyptian was, was kind of that, the first opportunity for Israel to respond to Moses. They could have rallied around Moses at that point and said, hey, uh, God gave given us Moses, and so now he's going to deliver us from, from slavery. And that could have been the moment of Israel positively responding to Moses as their leader. But the problem is, is that doesn't happen, because we learn about the Hebrews' opinion of Moses on the next day, right? Because the next day, Moses finds the two Hebrews doing what? Well, quarreling. 
Well, that's interesting because if you read the rest of the Old Testament and the Hebrews and the Israels wandering in the wilderness, what's one thing that Israel came on doing? Quarrel. Alright? And what does Moses do? He comes and he tries to mediate. He, uh, he, Moses is a mediator, right? He says, hey, you guys are brothers. What are you fighting for? Right? And then what does the, well, what does the Hebrew say to Moses? Well, well, who made you ruler and judge over us? Right? So when we were kids, right, and one, one of our friends was being really bossy, what would we say to him? We'd say, who died and made you king? Right? Well, guess what? That's what they're saying to Moses. Hey, Moses, who died and made you king? Who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, the, the, the whole point, though, that Stephen is saying is kind of behind the scenes. Is he's saying, well, actually, God made Moses ruler and judge. That's it. Right? But you're not listening to him. That's the whole point. So we learn the Hebrews' opinions of Moses. They, they don't respect him. They don't respect his authority. So because of that, Moses has to flee because he's killed an Egyptian. The Hebrews aren't rallying around him, so he has no choice but to flee at that point. Right? And so then Moses has his own wandering in the wilderness, if you will, for 40 more years in the wilderness of Midian until he meets God in a burning bush. Alright? So that first that first encounter was kind of Moses' first coming. And we, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago with Joseph, right? Where Stephen sees this kind of motif, if you will, of how the first visit down to Egypt, the, the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. And it was only on the second visit. And in the same way, right, in, in Moses' first coming, the Israelites didn't recognize or respect Moses. And the question is, is when Moses comes back, the second time, will they recognize and will they respect Moses? So God meets Moses in a, in a burning bush that wasn't consumed. And in that encounter, right, he, uh, Moses approaches the bush and then God speaks from the bush and he says, Whoa, you need to take off your sandals because the place that you are standing on is holy ground. Okay? Now remember that because that becomes important later. But out of that bush, God tells Moses that, hey, it was already pointed to with his special birth, and now we see later through the burning bush a special calling from God that God has indeed, in fact, raised up Moses for the purpose of being the leader and redeemer and savior of his people. And so, and so he sends Moses, and of course he sends Moses with his staff, all right, and by the, by the staff and so forth, uh, Moses performs many wonders and signs in Egypt, right? You've got the ten plagues, all right, and then you have the parting of the Red Sea, and you have all these miracles uh, that Moses did. And, it, and, it, and in fact there, um, uh, it goes on to say uh, that, it, that God sent Moses, uh, Stephen makes this emphatic point, right, that that same Moses that they rejected initially, Stephen says that God, God now sent as a ruler and redeemer through the encounter at the burning bush. And he actually uses the noun redeemer, which again is a connection to Jesus. Because the word, the noun redeemer is only used one time. Alright? The, the corresponding verb to redeem is used in Luke 24-21 to describe Jesus. Again, at the, in the walk, uh, on the road to Emmaus. The disciples said we had hoped, Luke 24, 21, we had hoped that he was the one uh, to redeem Israel. And so there's this constant connection between Moses and Jesus 
within Luke's right, right? And so, so we saw earlier that the Hebrews rejected Moses at his first coming. And so now, how do they respond 40 years later when Moses shows back up, right? Well, you know, if you've read the Old Testament, you know how it goes, right? Uh, Moses leads them out of Egypt, right? And he leads them to Mount Sinai. And, and he's gone a little over a month, and they're already breaking the second commandment. You shall not make any carved images. And, right, and they have Aaron make a golden calf, and they all bow down and worship the golden calf. All right? And then Stephen even cites Amos chapter 5, where he says there, uh, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Riphan. So in other words, uh, God is saying, uh, did you offer sacrifices to me in the wilderness uh, nation of Israel? You did offer sacrifices, but you, you were offering them to the wrong God, not to me. And, and if you've read the Old Testament, you know, right, that what happened was throughout their time in the wilderness, right, what, is, what does Stephen say? their hearts turned back to Egypt, right? At one point, they wanted to kill Moses and say, hey, let's all go back to Egypt, right? So what's the point? The point is, is that Moses was their God-appointed leader and redeemer, and yet they rejected him, all right? And then, but it was this same Moses who said to them in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that... Uh, God would one day raise up a prophet. He said in, in, in Deuteronomy 18, 18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this is Moses, right? They rejected Moses. Now Moses is telling them in Deuteronomy, which is shortly before he will die, that God is going to one day raise up a prophet like him and that they better listen to him. Because if they don't listen to this other prophet who's going to one day come, he's going, they're going to, God, God himself is going to require it of them. Now, Steve, now Peter has already cited this same verse in, a, in one of his earlier speeches. And now Stephen is citing it again, clearly saying what? What's Stephen clearly saying? He's saying... That that prophet that Moses promised was going to come did come, and his name was Jesus. That prophet that Moses promised to come came. His name was Jesus, and guess what? You rejected him just like you did Moses. And now you're in big trouble. That's basically what Stephen's saying, right? But but here's the thing, right? What 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 Stephen is basically saying is this: He's saying. They rejected Moses at his first coming. Okay? And then he came back and they rejected him again. Moses, Jesus came. Okay? And y'all rejected him. You crucified him. And in essence, kind of what Stephen is saying, is he's saying, and now Moses, now, now Jesus is kind of coming back. This time, through, through the proclamation of his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, is kind of coming back through the proclamation of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, now you kind of have a second chance to believe in Him. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Right? Jesus uh, Jesus is that prophet who came, who spoke all that the Father commanded Him. 
Alright, this is their second chance to receive him. The question is, what are they going to do? And it's the same question that's put to us today, right? Will we submit to Jesus' leadership as God's chosen king? That's the question, right? You see, that's the thing. God doesn't have to give us second chances. He just doesn't. But so often he does. Sometimes he gives us third, fourth, fifth chances. Right? And, but what are we going to do? Right? How are we going to respond to Jesus? You know, as a, as a preacher, you know, preachers always like to give invitations to follow Jesus. And the reason for that is, I never know if this might be your last time to hear the gospel and be saved. I don't know that. We could all walk out this... No one in this room is guaranteed to walk out the door and come and be here next Sunday. Just nobody's guaranteed that. Right? So if you are in this room, God has appointed you to be in this room so you would have at least one more time to hear the gospel. And I think what Stephen is saying and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us is now is our, now is our possibly our last opportunity to respond positively to God's appointed king. Will we submit to Jesus' leadership as God's chosen king? Or will we reject the eternity hanging around? So number one, Israel missed God in Moses' birth. Number two, Israel missed God in Moses' leadership. And then finally, number three, kind of the final part of Stephen's speech there, is that Israel missed God in the temple, right? In verse 44 there, he kind of takes, he kind of takes a sharp turn from talking about Moses to talking about the tent of witness, right? Uh, it says there in verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, uh, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that they had seen. And then he goes on to talk about how they brought the tabernacle uh, the tabernacle into the land of Egypt with Joshua, uh, and then how eventually uh, David wanted to build a temple for God, but uh, he had shed too much blood, so Solomon ended up having to be the one to build the temple. Uh, but then, it, um, in verse 48 there, he begins to reference Isaiah 66, where, um, where he's saying there that even though they had the tabernacle and then later they had the temple, the reality is what? That God doesn't live in a building, right? A building can't contain God, okay? Uh, but in Isaiah 66, it says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Uh, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? So the final issue that Stephen is speaking to, to the Jewish authorities that have him on trial right now and are about to kill him, alright? The final thing he wants to address is their, uh, their basically their idolatrous view of the, of the temple, right? Uh, he's critiquing the way that they view the temple, right? Many of the Jews thought that si simply because they were Jews, they were good to go simply because they had the temple that they were good to go. Hey, we have the temple, right? We have the only place of, of true, we have the only place of true worship. And many of them thought, well, hey, if I just, uh, they had a very legalistic view of, of, of righteousness, right? Uh, if, if I just offer the right sacrifices, then, then I'm good to go, you know? It doesn't matter if I'm proud or arrogant or greedy or treat people Care, uh, uh, uncaringly, right? I don't really love God, but just love the, the, the pride of place that I can get because I look so religious in a religious society, right? That's all, that's what a lot of them cared about, right? They had this magical view of the temple, right? I can manipulate God by what I do. I'll 
offer the right sacrifices, offer the right things, God will bless me. God will forgive me. But, gee, but that misses literally the whole point of the temple. Alright? In fact, Jesus critiqued them about their view of the temple in Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. So he said, he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater? The gold or the temple that made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears... By the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. So what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is this. Jesus' point is this. The temple means nothing without God. Right? The place has nothing to do with it. What makes the temple supposed to be the temple is because God is there. So if God isn't there, it doesn't matter if you got the temple. It doesn't matter if it's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It doesn't matter if God isn't there. Right? That's the whole point. The temple really wasn't for God as much as it was for Israel. Right? It was supposed to be a place for them to express their worship of the one true God, right? And in fact, Jesus, shortly before he was crucified, actually entered in and, and had to cleanse the temple because, right, because it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations and they had made it a den of thieves, right? And so the temple wasn't anything special in and of itself, right? And that's what we saw throughout Stephen's speech, right? Uh Abraham was blessed by God, even though he didn't own a single square foot of land in the, in, in the promised land, right? Uh, Moses was there. God was there in the burning bush, right? It was holy ground, right? Just as holy as the holy of holies would be in the temple, right? He had, to, he had to take off his sandals, right? But guess what? Mount Sinai isn't in the land of Israel. It's not even in the land of Israel, okay? In other words, what makes a place holy isn't just the... the the, the real estate is the presence of God. And so this building, as great as it is, is meaningless if God's not here. Right? And so that's the whole point. That's what they missed, right? That's what the Jews were missing. Right? God was present wherever his faithful people were. Not just in the land of Israel, but everywhere people were gathered in his name. In genuine worship and trust and surrender. And wherever his, wherever his chosen leaders were, were followed. And so because of that, because they literally missed the whole point, this is scary, y'all. They literally missed the whole point of their own religion. And what does Stephen say? He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did so to you, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. So Stephen didn't defend himself, right? He just delivered the counter accusation, one that they frankly just couldn't bear to hear. And that is, it's not me who's missed it, it's you who's missed it. You've missed the whole point, right? And so as I close this morning, I think it's just worth asking this question, right? Because we don't, you know, you know, 
we don't want to fall into the trap of, of becoming a Pharisee by pointing out other Pharisees. That, that would literally miss the whole point. The point is for us to look in the mirror and to say, and to ask, and to take a sober reflection at my own heart, at your own heart, and to say, have I missed the point? Did somewhere along the way, did I start thinking that my religious activities, or if I showed up at a certain place at a certain hour of the week, that made me right with God? Or do I know Him? Do I love Him? Do I serve Him? Do I worship Him? Do I commune with Him? Do I fellowship with Him? Which is it? So as we close this morning, this is, this is the invitation that stands. True knowledge of God, true relationship. God doesn't need a building. Right? God doesn't need a building. God is wherever He is loved, trusted, serving. That's what God is. And so the question is, is, is God in you? Is he in your home? Is he in this church? He is wherever he is loved, trusted, served, and obeyed. And so this is the invitation. Maybe you can say, you know what? Maybe I've just been playing religious games. But I've never really surrendered and trusted in Christ this morning. Everything can change today. This might be the last time you have the opportunity to hear this so I extend it to you. If you will trust in Christ, turn from your sin, just surrender your will to the will of God's appointed King. He will forgive you of your sin. He will adopt you to His family. He will fill you with the Holy Spirit. He will change you and empower you to live a life that will matter. King Jesus, thank you for this morning. You are God's appointed champion. As shown in your special births, as shown in your mighty works and miracles, as shown ultimately in your crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. There is no one like you. And so just as it stood for Moses, so you stand for us. Will we trust you? Will we listen? Will we obey? God, I pray that if there's someone who may be up until this point where they've been on the fence, God, I pray this morning, by your Holy Spirit, they would wait no longer. They would see that you are the appointed king. You are the one who has come like Moses, Lord, that we must listen to him. I pray that you would give us circumcised hearts, not stiff necks, Lord, but pliable spirits, God, to trust, to surrender, to love. There is nothing and no one like you. So, God, I just pray that. You would stir hearts to you. Lord, we yield ourselves to you. You are God's chosen king. Lead us, O Lord, we pray.